This week at Hope Point. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses, and each, each man is to take a lamb for his family, year old males without defect, perfect, slaughter them at twilight, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. The whole Old Testament is nothing but a pointer to the New Testament. It's like every lamb that was placed on the altar in the Old Testament, it's like his voice would say, it's not me. My blood is no good. It's just a pointer to the end of the show. Throughout history, God has used symbols and signs to point to what is to come. In the Old Testament, He asked His people to sacrifice animals for the atonement of sin. They had to make these sacrifices year after year because no lamb was sufficient. Until the perfect lamb Jesus came to take away the sin of the world once and for all. His sacrifice was not just so we could be forgiven of sin. Jesus died so that those who believe in Him could enjoy the power and privilege of reigning over all the earth with Him as a kingdom of priests forever. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 5. There are parts of the Bible that are are difficult to preach, not because I don't understand them, though there are some parts I don't understand, but there are some parts I understand clearly, they move me deeply. But I understand that what I see on the text is so great that I fear messing it up with my words and communicating it to you. And I really understand that by last week I showed you a picture or two of the Grand Canyon that at least now we're privileged uh, to build a visit while we were out in that area at a wedding. And so we looked at the Grand Canyon and as, um, as soon as the service was over, Somebody came to me and didn't hurt my feelings at all because I had already said it as I tried to sort through my two or 300 pictures of what's the best picture. That I feared that I was going to show something on the screen that was going to lessen what the Grand Canyon is because it's nothing like when you're on the South Rim. Uh, the Grand Canyon average is uh, 4,000 feet in depth. It's 277 miles long. And it is um, 18 miles wide, which makes it 1,904 square miles. The state of Rhode Island is 1,228 square miles. (laughs) So the Grand Canyon is bigger than Rhode Island. And I'm going to try to amaze you by putting a picture of it on a screen that's 16 feet by 7. And so it's, it's difficult to be able to say the Grand Canyon is great. So when you come to Revelation chapter 5... And you try to explain what Jesus Christ has really done to eradicate sin and to cleanse our souls and to ensure that we could live in heaven with God. It's very difficult to say it in a way that is, even comes close to how beautiful it is in the text. Now, I want to let you know that my sermon today is based on the sermon last week. So it's like episode one, episode two. You shouldn't feel a disadvantage if you missed last week because it's my job to sort of catch you up just like the TV people do when you're saying, well, in in, uh, episode six, you know, now you're ready for episode seven. So in episode one last week, we looked at the greatness of God. We said the book of Revelation was about worshiping God, experiencing the pleasure of looking at his greatness as you experience pleasure of looking at the canyon. In Revelation 4, we saw a group of people who were looking at God. God was in the center on his throne. There was a rainbow over it. Peals of lightning and thunder came out. Multicolored light display all from the throne of God and a beautiful ocean 
perfectly calm sea right in front of him. Then around the throne were four living creatures. One had the face of a man, one had the face of an eagle, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of a lion. Very mysterious creatures all around the throne of God. And then outside of that circle were 24 thrones, each of them with angelic beings on the throne called elders. And there was one specific reason they were worshiping God, the theme of chapter 4. They sang, holy, 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 like infinitely pure and morally excellent are you, God. Not a trace of sin. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. The chair you're sitting on, the shirt you're wearing, everything in life. Those of you who are in chemistry understand that there's not... Anything in life that we enjoy that's not somehow traceable back to a molecule made up of some atoms. And it's just amazing. He created it all and in his omnibenevolence has given it to us. And they praise him for that. So that's episode one. Episode two of the chapter four, five vision um, praises God for something else. But before the praise comes, there is a pause. There's a delay. There's a problem that sort of puts a, a halt to the praise. It's solved, which makes the praise more intense at the end of chapter 5, but you're not really going to understand that until you understand this dilemma. It's not just a dilemma in chapter 5 of Revelation. It is the dilemma of all of history, biblical history and secular history. And that is this. God wants the world to come and enjoy His Grand Canyon awesomeness invites people to do that from the beginning of time, but he is holy, 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 and we are sinful, 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 so we cannot come. That's the problem. That problem is raised in chapter 5. It's like when Lisa and I were going to go to the Grand Canyon, and we knew when we come up to this gate, if we could just get past the gate, there was a 25-mile ride where you had 10 scenic views of that Grand Canyon. We had to get in. We had to pay. And so the problem is there's a gate. No one is allowed. No one has enough. You can't get in to enjoy Heaven National Park is the problem. So that's problem number one. But then there's another problem in the world. There are people who would like to get in Heaven National Park, but they can't because of the gate, because of the sin of their life. But in reality, the greater problem in the world is that most people do not want to enter Heaven National Park. They hate it. They hate the concept of spending the rest of their life praising God. In fact, they love their sin. They don't want to be cleansed of it. They wish that God did not exist at all. They spend their whole life rebelling against God, and they would love to fill up every square inch of the Grand Canyon with sin so that the glory of God disappears. So you have a world that deserves to be judged. You have a God who does not want to judge sinners. This is the quandary that leads us into Revelation chapter 5. Who is capable of solving this dilemma of bringing some people into heaven, judging others who remain outside in their defiance? Who has so much authority 
that he can rest his hand on a sinner and say, I pardon you, and with the other hand, rest his hand on a rebel that says, I forgive you, I mean, or I judge you. Who has the authority to offer mercy and justice at the same time? That's the tension that leads us into Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of, 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 of him who sat on the throne from last week, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So in the remaining chapters of Revelation, chapter 6 through really 19, we see what this, these seals are. They're the judgments of God that are going to come upon the earth as God judges the earth and at the same time takes the persecuted church home to heaven. And so this angel sort of screams throughout the cosmos, who is worthy to bring history to a close? Who is worthy to decide today is the day it all ends? world is judged. The church comes home for its reward. Who is worthy? And it's sealed with this wax seal, which meant in times of antiquity that nobody could open the seal, the document, without the permission of the owner. And we're struggling here in Revelation 5. Who is worthy to take the scroll from the owner's hand? The scroll is written, it has, interesting, it has writing on both sides, which means there is not one more thing that can be written. They filled up everything on the inside, filled up everything on the outside, which means there's not one more thing that God has to put in place before he releases judgment and reward upon the world. It's interesting that this, this scroll that John sees here in Revelation chapter 5 is the exact scroll that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, had seen in chapter 7, 500 years earlier. And so now for 500 years, that scroll, the people of God had been waiting for it to be opened, and now you and I have been waiting for it to be opened for 2,000 years. Who is worthy to bring history to a close? And John is brokenhearted because he could find no one. He could see no one is capable of this task. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. So in John's mind, he knows that the promises of the future kingdom and the promises of judgment on a rebellious, holiness-mocking world all lay inside this scroll. And so John is saying if nobody opens it, the status quo remains. Evil is praised, evil wins, the church is persecuted, the weak are oppressed, wicked men continue to rule the world by evil power, and that's how it's all going to end, unless the scroll can be opened. So you can see his, his sorrow. So last week I told you that we had, um, you know, we saw 24 elders on 24 thrones that were circling God. Well, one of the elders gets off his throne and comes to John and says, there is an answer, and gives him this answer here. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, John. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven, it's seven seals. It's interesting, he doesn't call him Jesus here. It's just, he calls him by two titles to let you know and to let me know that the answer for the future has been worked out way in the past. Because this elder goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible to give the name of the deliverer who's going to open the scroll and calls him the Lion of Judah. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, a man named Jacob, who became the father of Israel, is talking to his 12 sons, who later went on to be 12 whole distinct groups, tribes. And so he's talking to his son Judah, and it's obvious he's talking about an event way in the future because it didn't happen in Judah's life. And he said, Judah, the kingdom is never going to depart from your tribe. The scepter is never going to depart from your family, Judah. And the one who rules out of the tribe of Judah will rule with the fierceness of a lion forever. Judah probably had no idea what he's talking about. Well, the book of Revelation helps us understand that's, that's who Jesus, that's who was identified in this. And here's the lion of Judah. It goes all the way back to Genesis. That was the prophecy of the coming deliverer of the world. But he also describes this future deliverer as the root of David. Again, pretty complex to us. I do want to remind you, it does help to know the Old Testament when you're reading the book of Revelation. Most people wouldn't really have... But 400 times in the book of Revelation, it points back to the Old Testament. So it's pretty good to know the first half of the story. Because this also, this root of David is also described in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 11. David was the greatest of all of Israel's kings, but he died. When he died, his kingdom started to disintegrate. And eventually it got judged pretty bad and overtaken by the Assyrians and later Babylon. And so it looks like there's not going to be any future hope for this kingdom and that the deliverer is coming out of this kingdom. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, it's the picture of a tree that had been cut down and it's just a stump and there's a small little root, small little shoot growing out of the middle of the stump and that's called the root of David. Which means that out of this utterly broken nation, Israel, God will still raise up a worldwide deliverer. And that's why he's called what he is in the book of Revelation. Well, uh, if you were John at this point, you obviously, I mean, a minute ago, you're crying. Nobody can open the book. Now you're happy because a lion, man, roar. A lion's coming to open the book. It's the best I can do. <laughs> and preserve my dignity. So a lion is coming to open the book. John, so all is taken care of. But there's a surprise. Because all of a sudden, one comes open, one walks up that the elder had just introduced, and it's not a lion at all. He was just promised a lion. This is very confused. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, 
encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is a complete paradox to John. And if you're honest, it's a paradox to you as well because we just have this great promise that a very perfect and powerful person is coming to bring history to a close. And instead of seeing a warrior king like the lion of Judah, we see a lamb who has been slaughtered. It's really too much for John to understand because this lamb who's been slaughtered is now standing. How can a slaughtered lamb stand? So it's overwhelming to him because it means that this slaughtered lamb died in combat, yet he defeated the enemy, which is why now he's able to stand again. So John, he's about to be, go to school. This is no ordinary lamb that came up to get this scroll. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So this lamb that comes up to take the scroll has seven horns. Now, I know all of you have seen, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You go to any farm and you see a bull, and that's just a beast anyway, strong. But you see a bull with horns, and that's a whole different kind of intimidation, getting out around those horns. So here this lamb has seven horns, seven being a number of perfection. So this is perfect power. This lamb has complete total in the Bible Horns always represent the power of kings and kingdoms. This lamb has seven complete, perfect, total, powerful horns. But he also has um, knowledge. Got the spirit, which are, he said, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Before I talk about the seven um, eyes, I do want to just at least tease you a little bit with the power of this seven horned lamb in Revelation 6 that we'll look at in a few weeks. Revelation 6, 15, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. This is no ordinary lamb. Seven horns, all power, so that all the generals and the presidents and the governors and the kings of the world are begging to be saved from the wrath and the fury and the judgment of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So the Lamb has power. John is comforted by that. Then the Lamb also has not just full power, but full knowledge because he has seven eyes. Again, a reminder that he has perfect knowledge of what's going on in all of the earth. Well, this had to be an enormous comfort to the early church that Jesus Christ was looking at, aware of all of the suffering in their life. 
That's why each of the churches, when we study them in chapters 2 and 3, begin with this statement by Jesus to the church that said, I know. I know what you're going through because he has full knowledge. Seven eyes, complete, perfect knowledge. Jesus is able to say, I know what you're enduring. I know what you're suffering. My spirit lives in your house. My spirit is at your desk at work. My spirit is with you when they imprison you, when they beat you, when they kill you. My spirit is there. I know. I know every thought in every brain right now. I know every motive in every heart. I know the lies of every politician. I know the plans of every general on the battlefield. I know what every person on this planet is doing every second. And I know every strategy that the world is using to try to destroy the church and fill this land with lies instead of truth. I know it all. So nothing is happening because I don't know. So when you look at this lamb that has perfect power and perfect knowledge, you have to ask, as John would want to know, well, why'd you die? If you got all the knowledge in the world, didn't you see didn't you see it coming? Somebody tried to kill you? If you have all the power in the world and you saw it coming, couldn't you stop it? I'm telling you, the whole chapter is filled with quandary, John. And the beauty of it is he did see it coming and he didn't stop it, is the answer in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, obviously, at this point in the sermon, you know that we're talking about Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood on the cross. When Jesus Christ was on the earth, three-year ministry, teaching people. They loved him. They loved his stories. He was crazy wise. They loved his miracles. He was immeasurably powerful. But the people had no idea why he had come. But one person did. It was the man who introduced him at the beginning of his three-year ministry. It was actually a cousin of his named John the Baptist. And when John saw him at the beginning of his three-year ministry, this is what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Israel had been waiting for 2,500 years for its Messiah King to come. And when it comes, how is he introduced? Look, there's your King. No, look, there's your Lamb. There's your Lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, all of the people knew that God was going to send a Messiah, a delivering king, a great ruler. But they thought he was going to be a a lion. But there was one man who understood just the opposite. The prophet Isaiah, who spoke 700 years before Jesus came, described the Messiah deliverer with these words in chapter 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
This is the most troubling chapter for Jews in all of the Old Testament. Because it is a clear description of their king. It is a clear description of a ruler, of a Messiah. And they cannot grasp that the Messiah that God would send would be slaughtered like a lamb. So they do some theological gymnastics to say the chapter means something else. But they're not alone in that disbelief that God could die. Son of God could be slaughtered. Muslims um, believe, or if you look at the teaching in the Quran, they say several complimentary things about Jesus Christ. They say that he was born of a virgin, Mary. They call him a, a prophet. And uh, there, are, there are a couple places in the Quran, they even call him Messiah. But they do not believe he died on a cross. Because they said he was too good of a man to suffer a violent death. And they believed that God took him straight to heaven, avoiding the cross while somebody else that looked like him died on the cross. But they could not, they could not comprehend that the main story of the Bible is a suffering son of God. Suffering God. Jews and Muslims are not alone in this. Many in the West, many churches in America do not want to think much at all about a bloody lamb. I served in a church once where the staff asked me because we were supposedly reaching this, it was a long time ago, reaching a, a generation called seekers, said, you can't speak that much about blood on Sunday morning and reach seekers. I, I was horrified. It's the central theme of the book of Revelation. Do you know how many times in the book of Revelation Jesus is called the Lamb of God? 28 times. It like, it's his badge of honor. This whole idea of the lamb being sacrificed is what fans into flame the, the worship in, 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 the book of, in the book of Revelation. You were worthy to take the scroll because you bled. I mean, this is the th the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, are composed of five different songs. Two of them are in chapter 4, three of them are in chapter 5. This is song number 3 of the five. And it is interesting, the longest of the songs in Revelation 4 5, and the longest song is dedicated to the blood of the Lamb. Why is Jesus Christ worthy to open the scroll that brings the world to an end? Because he is a lion that became a lamb. Because he's a lamb that gives life by giving up his life. The Bible says that they sang with... As you read, and we don't have time today, maybe, maybe come back to it next Sunday. There's increasing intensity in the worship services in the book of Revelation the more they sing about Jesus' death. 
It just gets higher and higher. More people, more and more get involved. We'll stop at a certain place a day to do the Lord's Supper. But it's, I just need to let you know, there is nobody in heaven that is saying, oh, man, that's a bummer that he died. Like, poor Jesus. Man, he was such a good guy. He had so much going for him. And then all of a sudden, life snuffed out, murdered. No, they're saying he's worthy because there was intentionality and purposefulness in his death. With your blood, you purchased men. There was a reason. There's no sadness about this. There's gladness. This word purchase, it's a common secular Greek word that you would use if you're going to make a purchase in the marketplace, agorazo. God looks down from history or from heaven and says, well, you know, I own all the mountains, all the oceans, all the rivers, all the trees. And then he looks in the marketplace and says, I own all the tables, I own all the chairs. And he looks at the people and goes, I don't own any of them. Because their sin has separated themselves from me. They're not my people. So God looks at all the people in all the marketplaces in all the cities of the world and says, they're not mine and I want to purchase them. I want to buy them. I want to do business. And to go to the marketplace to buy sin-free people, you had to bring the blood of your son, the blood of the lamb. You know, God had made it clear from the beginning of the Bible that no sin is forgiven until blood is shed. And look how God, look, look what we see in the scripture. Let's see. I'll just do this. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is another financial term. Agarazzo was one. This is Lutron. Both of them are financial terms that in order to purchase our salvation, Jesus said, I got to give my life. Here's how we could put it in a principle. The price of sin is high. It's always blood. But the payment God requires is the payment God supplies. He always required blood but from the beginning of history, God's the one who supplied the blood. You remember when Israel was in captivity, 400 years dominated by Egypt and slavery, and God said, tonight I'm going to free you, but make sure that before I come with my great act of deliverance, you sprinkle blood on your doorpost because every Egyptian home that is not covered in blood, I'm going to take a life. And every Israelite home that has blood sprinkled on the doorpost, I'm going to save that house. But then God said, but I'm going to provide the blood. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses in Egypt, each man is to take a lamb for his family, year old males without defect, perfect, slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. So the sacrifice God requires is the sacrifice God supplies. Blood. The blood of a lamb. 
The whole Old Testament is nothing but a pointer to the New Testament. It's like every lamb that was placed on the altar in the Old Testament, it's like his voice would say, it's not me. My blood is no good. It's just a pointer to the end of the show. The Son of God, His blood. Lisa and I have a friend um, who went to New York to see a play. And the play was just so big, so phenomenal. The actors were so great. Music was so intense that at the, the mark, about an hour and 15 minutes, just the whole auditorium erupted. It was a, just a crescendo, a crescendo of, 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 of just joy and happiness and everybody's clapping and the theater lights are on and, and, and our friend just said, this is great and just got up and everybody left the auditorium and she walked back to her hotel room only to discover later that that was just intermission. <laughs> she missed the second half. And so when you come to Revelation chapter 5 or you come from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you realize that everything in the Old Testament is just the first half and the show is Christ. And every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a pointer to the show itself. The blood of the Lamb shed for your sins. His life was so perfect and so powerful that look what he was able to do. Persons from every tribe, language, and tongue are able to come to heaven because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of one man. There are 500,000 villages today in India. 500,000 villages. Now you go to any village, find any sinner, any man, any woman, any child, if they would believe the gospel of Christ because of that one man's blood, the blood of the Lamb, they can go to heaven. You go to any prison, any hospital, any industry, any government office, any university, any kindergarten, find a person who will believe in the blood of the Lamb from every person, language, tribe, and tongue. Anybody can come. That's why he's worthy. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. But I caution you not to leave the theater too soon because it's not just the blood of the Lamb that forgives you is why it was shed. It was to give you the privilege and the power of reigning with Christ in heaven. After he shed his blood, the scripture says, Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I can't imagine how comforting this was to the early church. All of the culture around them mocked them, hurt them, imprisoned them, and killed them. Just like in the world today, in many of the very difficult places of the world to live. It's almost like if you live in the world today, it's increasingly feeling this way, is it not? It feels like the church is losing. Well, it's felt that way throughout history, okay? It feels that way in a lot of places around the world. It feels like if you're a Christian, you're going on the battlefield and losing because the power of evil is so great. It feels like losing. It feels that way. 
And here, Revelation chapter 5, or the whole book of Revelation, is written to the early church to say, you will overcome the same way that the Lamb overcame, by dying to live again to reign. Triumph comes after the suffering. The Lamb did not die just so we could be forgiven of sin. He died so we could reign with Him on earth. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you every time we read that in the book, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I can only answer it by when we get to Revelation 20, I'll tell you my best guess. But it doesn't matter. This phrase is used so much in the Bible. The promise is clear. You will reign over all those who are now reigning over you. We say it like this. All oppressors will one day be crushed. All liars will one day be silent. And all the arrogant will one day be powerless. And those who have loved the Lamb of God will reign over all the earth. And that's why He is worthy. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.